set down your sleepy water and your Mr. Whistle and crack a cold one. It's time to have a real talk about pediatric dentistry. This is Bruise and Tiny Teeth. Here's some updates. So, all right. Well, my guest today, uh, and I'm very excited. We've had a lot of hype going on for this one, but Thad Harker's joining us on the podcast today. And I, I asked Thad to come on the podcast because he and I kind of worked together initially on some uh, early stages of my build out back before COVID and before plans got totally shook up when I was still potentially looking to do a build out in Iowa. Um, but Thad is like the go-to guy here. I'm piping you up here if you can't tell that, but you know, okay. <laughs> he's my guy for all things build out. Um, and I'm going to let you like give me some numbers here with what Primus, your company has done for, you know, building out dental offices. But uh, uh, word on the street is that you've, you've built a dental office or two in your time here. Yeah, de uh, definitely. I appreciate, uh, appreciate the kind words. So premise, uh, I believe uh, my last count, it's it's sort of an unofficial account, but uh, I know when I started six and a half years ago, back in March, 2015, we we're somewhere around 400 complete dental offices or dental office projects. And, and now we're up over uh, a thousand unique projects. So wow. that could be anything from a thousand square foot expansion, obviously, or an uplift, but uh, lots of ground up buildings, lots of full size build outs, lots of real estate purchases of existing buildings, and then coming back in and demolishing and, and building out a dental office. So um, what allows us to have been part of that many is six and a half years ago, we were basically in Iowa. We did some work in Omaha, Sioux Falls, and up and down the Mississippi River, maybe in Illinois and Wisconsin. And now we're in 16 states, which makes us geographically uh, the largest boutique healthcare design builder really a, 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 that exists in the country. That's awesome. So yeah, thousand plus dental offices, which I, it's why I thought it'd be cool to have this conversation because when you do something a thousand times, you've kind of, you know, you've seen things that are slam dunk and you've seen things not work out so well. So the theme I wanted to stick to today was um, knowing that our audience is going to be predominantly pediatric dentists or general dentists that see a lot of kids was, you know, how to build your dream pediatric dental practice. Um, so I've got, you know, tons of questions. People are writing me in questions, dropping off questions. So like we could go so many different directions with this, but maybe, uh, do you mind just start me off by giving me an update with like what COVID has done, you know, for your guys's business in the marketplace. I'm assuming there was a bit of a, a lull, you know, when the pandemic hit, but now we're in this strange time where, Lumber prices have skyrocketed and now they're falling. You know, are you seeing more, um, you know, uh, standalone buildings being built up? Has there been a pent up demand? What what kind of um, trends are you seeing in in your uh, part of the industry here? Great, uh, great question. So if if we go back to to March of of 2020 and compare what COVID meant to us then, what it and, and today it's, it's really two different things. You know, back then there was lots of panicking. There were uh, some financial institutions that declared dental was dead. It would never come back. Um, and that lasted for all of two months. Uh, things came back rather quickly. You know, once, once everybody was able to get back in their office, um, they found that the patients really hadn't gone anywhere. We still, we still need dental health care, right? Mm -hmm. I think now more than than any time in the future. So there was certainly a lull through last year, uh, mostly because of the timing of when it hit, right? It hit in the spring and weren't you going to build ground up dental offices in the Midwest or really anything north of, let's say, middle part of Missouri, right? It's a start in spring and hopefully end in fall type scenario. And that's mm -hmm. certainly our business time of year. So uh, busiest time of year. So it certainly delayed things. Now you you come up to where we're at today. Let's fast forward to today. You know the industry is in in a sense totally recovered. In, in many ways, almost when I talk to the individual clients that we've worked with in the past, it's almost stronger than what it was, and it's especially stronger than what it was for those who had invested in technology, who had invested in updated sterilization centers, and who are often their patients. You know, a, a different sort of uh, assurance right of, mm -hmm. of cleanliness sterilization and those types of things 
So obviously today our number one thing is COVID is still influencing us, but it's an influence that comes from outside the industry. It's more so uh, a delay in people getting back to work. So you have uh, stickiness in the logistics of the timeline, right? From the truck driver to the production facility, to the truck driver, to you know getting it to the distributor, to just having people there to do the work alongside, you know, along that supply chain of the construction material costs. And that's really where we've seen it started with lumber, uh, started with plywood. It's still kind of in the plywood area. Lumber's leveled out uh, for the first time since second or third quarter of last year. We've seen lumber prices actually go down. It's not a huge arresting in the price, but it, but at least the, the slope of the curve went down. Um, and we're, we're, we're being told from from the people that are in the know that prices should level out in, in in basically all aspects of construction material costs sometime between now and the second quarter of next year. Gotcha. Um, how much they'll return back to? Will they ever return back to to pricing that it was before? You know, obviously we can't answer that, but we're we're, we're seeing things. We're seeing at least the escalation slow down across most of those material areas. And to answer your questions, there was a lot of PPP money out there for folks that were already, you know, that were already established or already had practices. So we've seen a lot of one and two off, you know, hey, let's build out this operatory. Let's finish this one up. Maybe we'll buy some uh, higher technology dental equipment here. But we're still seeing people that didn't do anything last year and really have to do something either because their lease is up or they've grown out of their space or whatever, they're still marching really to that same drum that was pre-COVID, right? We know we have to do something because we still have a market outside these walls that we need to serve and we can't serve because of the size that we have now or that we are now. Gotcha. So then are you seeing any differences in, and this is not just necessarily COVID, but uh, in general, does it seem like more docs are taking that uh, that leap to become commercial real estate owners and build out, you know, their big dream building? Are you seeing more of a shift, you know, since uh, commercial real estate, you know, in the rental space is um, a little bit more of a buyer's market or renter's market? Are you are you guys seeing a shift? Are you doing more standalones or are you building out more lease spaces right now? I, I would say we're building as really almost as many if somebody's doing a large project, which is more than just like a, an adding an op here or an op there deal, if they're doing a large project and they're already in a lease space, uh, those people are not going to a different lease space, right? They're either staying where they're at or they're they're reacting and they need to build a larger building, right? Because they're, mm-hmm. they're down around that three to four chair place. That for many of them, it was their first office, their first 10 years, and maybe a five-year renewable period have come have come due and they're they're really looking to go out and, and buy commercial real estate i would say this here, here's here's where the mark difference is happening at least in in the geographies that i cover is we're looking more at existing buildings right so instead of going from a lease space in a strip mall or an office plaza or medical plaza straight to a ground up building, people are more curious and, and we're at least spending more time looking to see what the what existing buildings might be available just so we can save on because your 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 shell structure is a lot of wood, right? So we're looking to see if we can save on your um you know your site construction costs, your parking lot, your curbs, gutters, those types of things. That that would probably be something that I see more of now post COVID than I did before. But people are still wanting to generally move from a lease space to own their own structure, whether it's an existing structure or one that we build from the ground up, due to the tax advantages, you know, of, of building ownership, right, um, mm-hmm. and and being able to build it out in a specific area and a specific size. And not have to share a wall with somebody or answer to a landlord or have an answer or have a landlord not answer to you. Right, right. And I know you and I had this conversation probably three years ago where and I, I know that there's a lot of people that share a similar um, dilemma that I that I had. But, you know, you're young pediatric dentist. You want to be a practice owner, but you're caught between, you know, you know, you're going to go out and start your own practice and you think, man, can I just find an existing space and build, you know, rent, rent something in 
whether it be an existing dental office or something in a medical complex or in a strip mall and save some money there, but know that I'm renting for a long time or do I find a way to get in that, you know, you know, build out that big dream building that I've always wanted to, but it kind of becomes a cash flow thing where yep. at least the issues, and I'm pretty sure this is still the case, but it, you know, it, it becomes a whole nother ball game and that jump into the commercial, you know, you're becoming a commercial real estate owner, an investor in commercial real estate. And that requires to get that loan. You need, uh, you know, a lot of times it's an SBA loan. You need the 10% down. And if you're a young dentist with all this student loan debt, you know, it's hard to come up with, you know, a hundred thousand, hundred fifty thousand dollars worth of a down payment. So I like the way that you put it was, you know, sometimes you got to build out that lease space first, rent for a while and build up that practice and get that golden hammer, you called it. And then once you're up and going, then you can strategize and plan for the long term. If, you know, building up your own building is something that you want to do, you know, eventually. So I like the way that you put that. Yeah. And and we, and that, that was the teaser that I sent you via tech. So I apologize for that. And I, I won't go into <laughs> all of it tonight because I, I would prefer that we, we schedule another one of these, hopefully light the interest in a lot of different folks that are out there kind of in that same situation you were in, or even, even they could be 10, 15, 20 years down the road and they want another location and they just don't know how they'll do it. Right. They, they know that they have the market. They know that they have the practice ideology to, to handle another location, but where do you get the capital to invest in that? And that's mm -hmm. really where we come to that build the suit option, which when you and I were talking would have probably been an ideal, would, would have been totally ideal for you, but we just weren't offering it then. We didn't have the expertise. The SBA thing was still just evolving into that 10% because really before you and I met the year prior to that or six months prior to that, you could have, the SBA would have done 100% financing, right? So it's mm -hmm. a whole would have opened up a whole different thing to you, but it once that ten percent came out, you're you're actually you're absolutely right. It's like I just paid to get my undergrad, I just paid to get my dental degree, I just became a, a pediatric specialist, and now I need to find another hundred and fifty to two hundred thousand to mm -hmm. do this. And so that's that's where that build the suit comes in uh, that would that we do that we're doing for a lot of startups now which really kills two birds with one stone, right? It provides you the golden hammer and a place that you can literally be in for, you know, the rest of your career if you want to. Mm -hmm. So that, that's a topic for another day, but it's a topic that is really caught fire over the last couple of years. And I think it's something that everybody's going to be very excited to, to, to have the opportunity to talk about as well. Yeah. But what you, what you did and what many do it's just, it's a safer way to start, right? You, mm -hmm. you know that you have what it takes to make it. You just have to give yourself an opportunity or a place to go work to show enough people in town, right? Hey, this, this is who I am. This is what I can provide. And then once you've been there five, seven, 10 years, you'll have all the opportunity in the world to go out and do what you want. And you're still not that old, right? Mm -hmm. Right. So, Right. So, okay. So on that, you know, the getting into like really the guts of what I was after with this podcast was trying to see if I could pull out of you some of the things that you see specific to pediatric dentistry. And I know that you obviously are very heavily involved in the construction phase, the build out process, the planning, you guys have it dialed in like a science, probably don't get to see as much of the follow-up to get feedback on things that are plus and minus, but you know, um, you know, after say a pediatric dentist has been in a practice a year or two years or five years, you know, it's always interesting to hear what are things you liked about the practice when you build it or about the space? What are things you wish you would have done different? Um, you know, and I just had this conversation day with another pediatric dentist, shout out to Caitlin. I'm drinking one of her beers here, by the way, okay. but she, um, she's building out a really nice office in, uh, the Indianapolis, metropolis, you know, like a, a small town outside of Indianapolis and she's building right. a really nice office. Um, and you know, she's just been going through this whole process and, and trying to figure out like, what kind of things do I want to put in now? Cause now's the time you got to make those changes and you can't do it after the fact. So I give her her credit. She's been seeing a lot of different offices, had, a, has a lot of really cool ideas. Um, but you know, until you've actually practiced out of that space, all you're doing is you're looking at it on paper and until it's actually in front of you, it's hard to know what you like and, and what you don't like. So, um, long winded way of asking, you know, do you have some pearls or some things that you see in pediatric specific offices that you find work really well, things that, um, 
maybe don't work so well and maybe, uh, you know, specifics as far as what are some of the mistakes pediatric dentists make that you think could be avoided or could benefit them from avoiding in the future? Um, that's a great question. And, uh, I'm going to preface my answer by saying, remember, there is no one right way, right? There are general rules, rules of thumb, fundamental principles, but a lot of that, what we, what, what I don't ever want any of my clients to lose sight of, or anybody that's listening uh, this evening is that, you know, this really comes down to your, your personality, what fits how you want to practice dentistry, whether it's pediatric dentistry or general dentistry or, or what, what have you. It's like, where do you want to meet your clients? How do you want, what, what gives you the best opportunity, right, to, to provide them the best care? And so the, the one thing that I see that, because I, I, I go back and I do a lot of tours of offices that we've built, whether it's a build out, whether it's a renovation, whether it's an expansion, addition, it, sound, the way sound travels, especially in a pediatric dental office, is incredibly important. Um, because you, if, if you have an open Bay area, right. And you didn't think about, well, how am I going to, cause, cause a lot of folks, they want super high ceilings, right? Well, and they want really fancy LVT tile floors. And the problem is, is when you put, you introduce kids to that environment, right. And you have no walls separate him and you, and you have no really sound barriers or buffers or absorbers or anything what the staff and the staff will be way more honest with me than the dentist. But what they'll say is, listen, Thad, we can be over in this corner in the office and everybody can hear what we're saying over in that corner of the office. So I think, and I don't want to say it's the number one issue, but I want to say it's a big issue. And this is more, it comes back to the design process, right? It comes back to using a, a, an architect that understands really what you're going to be doing there. Right. And, and what you're, customer or patient base is going to look like. Mm -hmm. And so we want to make sure that we use things like architectural clouds or we lower the ceiling or we, we use a lot more carpet squares than we would uh, LVT tile or, or what have you, right? So you can't just think about what's this going to feel like or be like or, or look like. It has to be, what's it going to sound like when I'm in there? Yeah. So are I you guys using, are you guys using like a special drywall? Do you double the drywall? Do you use like a quiet rock insulation in the ceiling? Like give me some, some specifics for helping so with that sound. Essentially ceiling height is, is probably your big one, right? You don't want uh, exposed what you'll see in like your downtown restaurant bars or loft type scenarios, right? Where you have the exposed duct work, it's spiral duct work. And then it's exposed all the way to the to the deck, right? This the, the the ceiling deck or roof deck or what have you. You want to you want to stay away from that. Really, we find that if you put an acoustical uh, ceiling right in a drop ceiling, people think of drop ceiling and they go, "Oh, that's so cheap," or "That's this," or it's just a bad connotation for something that that is not. It's not cheap. It's not inexpensive. It, so we, we look at acoustical ceiling tiles, you know, we try to focus in on the ones that we know are the best for sound reduction and, and absorption and that kind of stuff. And then we'll also, if we do have a client that likes a higher ceiling, we'll use our, what we call architectural clouds, right? So essentially it's, it's a, uh, a hanging ceiling but it doesn't hang throughout the entirety of the office. It's like it'll hang down. You can mount a, a dental light to it. You can put other lights in it. And it's essentially, it's, I, I better show it through pictures, but mm -hmm. it's just a floating arch, uh, architectural clouds that, that we use in that, in that area. And then when it comes to flooring too, is just try to stay away from ceramic tiles or anything like that. You want to go with more of carpets um, drywall is basically standard throughout. I mean, except for when you get around a mechanical room where your, your air and vac is, you know, we we can do all kinds of different things there, whether it's double thick drywall or in, other insulating properties and that kind of stuff. But, um, it also comes up, what type of room do you want? So when I first started, I was a little bit naive and I'd be like, well, everybody wants an open bay. You're a pediatric dentist. Don't. And after I talked to a couple, they were like, no, I don't want that. That's not the way I practice. I want to have more of a 
sealed off or private rooms just like I would in a general dentist office. Um, you know, that's something to keep in mind because just because everybody else is doing it a certain way doesn't mean that that's the only one right way. So it could be just using other, you know, dividing, not necessarily walls or whatever, but like architectural elements that kind of split up even in an open bay scenario, just anything that's cutting that sound transfer down from one end to the other end of a larger open area. Gotcha. Solid core doors too, I'm assuming, like a nice thing. Yeah. Yep, that's yep. helpful. Um, yep. I'm trying to think of anything I did different. I, I, I think in my ceiling in my ops, I've got uh, like above. I've got a drop ceiling, like you're talking about, but there's like an yep. insulated, like insulated foam or something that goes above them, and that seemed to that seemed to really help as well. Just keep that right. sound from going all the way up, which was nice. Yeah, because if I remember right when we looked at that area, it was all exposed. So you know exactly what I'm talking about. Correct. Right? Was, yeah. Yep. And, yep. And so they'll come in with like a, a spray foam type insulation. I don't, there's probably different various varieties and name brands of those. I don't know them off the top of my head, but mm-hmm. yeah, anything that you can, you can put obviously right. That, that absorbs something from bouncing off of it. Um, I'm trying to think of really any other regrets off the top of my head that that I hear. I mean, a, a lot of times it's just, you know, we built too small. We didn't assume that we were going to have the success that we did. Uh, and, and to me, that's, that's a, I don't want to say mistake, but it can easily turn into a very, what do I say, expensive assumption, right? We come out, we didn't feel like we had enough money so we wanted to go as inexpensive as we could and now we're sitting here two years into this and our collections are you know half a million seven hundred thousand dollars because we did everything else right we went in the right location we went in the right geography we had the right um, plan of attack marketing you know i'm the right dentist i hired the right staff and now we're sitting here and we're like i said two or three years into a 10-year lease and we have now no ability to expand, right? And so we don't really have any ability to grow other than just working 24 um, seven. Mm-hmm. You know, that continues to be, I think something that's very short-sighted, especially when it comes to pediatric dentists, because there's still a, a strong demand for you guys and gals in more rural areas. You know, the area outside the area, you and I talked about that a lot. In, in, in you determining where you wanted to be, right? And, and between where you're at and, and where I'm at, there's still probably an opportunity to throw another two or three pediatric dentists. Probably. That's how, mm-hmm. that's how um, huge the demand is. And so I, I think the biggest thing is don't undersell the success that you can have, you know, from very early start. Um, sure. Sure. That was high on my list too, was, uh, in some of the notes I jotted down is, uh, you know, underbuilding, you know, I feel like I never really hear of anybody saying, you know, I built too much of a practice, you know, or I, I built too much space. I mean, it happens rarely, but, and we, maybe we don't hear about it, but it seems to be the frequent issue where you outgrow your space right away. You run out of storage, you run out of, you know, chairs to put in and you max it out. And then it's going to cost you more money where if you put in the extra square footage or you have the ability to build out more, it seems to be beneficial to kind of go that route. Um, so I had, you know, as we are chatting here, I'm, I'm just trying to think of, you know, some things to kind of stimulate your brain here, but I wrote down some list of things in, in my office that have worked well from, you know, little pediatric construction standpoints. And then I have a couple of things I would have done different um, and, and chime in here as I rattle a few of these okay. off to see if, um, but uh, one thing that I, I came up with, these are like little small specific things here, um, nothing real major, but um, in my, all my operatory d- uh, doors, like my quiet ops, um, I had my my door guy get me doors that had like the little slit windows in them, like small little rectangular windows. Um, and that's been great because my assistants can peek in, see where I'm at, give me a thumbs up, say, hey, I'm ready. Without having to open the door, they can see where I'm at, what I'm doing. Um so, you know, picking your, your, uh, your doors, your, um, accessories, doing all that and, and putting some thought into where do you want windows on doors? That was a good one. And then also 
going back to sound and just a general floor layout, I thought it was helpful to have ops a long ways away from the the waiting room, you know, trying to put some just distance. Cause going back to what you said, sound is everything in a peds office. Um, and, you know, trying to do as many of the things like you talked about with helping the acoustics, but then also creating some physical distance where I try to have my ops on the opposite end of the office from where the waiting room is at. And, and it helps break up the sound that, and I've got a good sound system, like a Sonos in there. Um, TV's going, I've got some background noises. So I've asked before, like I can take out a tooth on a screaming four-year-old and I'll go up front and I'll be like, Oh my God, that was horrible. Like, do you guys hear that? And they'll be like, Nope, we didn't hear it. So it, it means something's working right, but keeping that distance is a, is a good idea there um, as well. And then this next one, I'm curious to see what you find here, Thad, but I didn't put a lab in my peds office. And it was mostly because I do um, like same day de novo style spacers, but then I also use a PVS a material. So I don't have to ever pour anything up. And I have not regretted that for a second. I don't know if you're seeing a trend in it maybe probably not in general dentistry, but in pediatric dentistry, not having gigantic labs, like maybe used to be the case, you know, five, 10, 15 years ago. I don't know if you noticed that at all. Uh, yeah, I would absolutely agree with that. I don't, I don't recall, and we do a ton of, of pedo offices and I don't really recall lab being of much of a priority at all. I mean, mm. and even in general dentistry, right, you'll have somewhere just like, yeah, this is my moneymaker. This is what I do. And, and again, there is no one right way. The last thing I'm going to tell them not being a dentist is, well, don't you know that, you know, seven out of 10 of your, because if that's what they want to do and that's what they feel comfortable doing and, and it provides them with joy and income and revenue and they love it and their patients are okay with it, then I'm not stepping in the way of that. But I would say, yeah, absolutely. What you did is is more the uh, the rule or the rule of thumb or the rule of thumb, right? And, and I, because there's there's so many uh, in Cedar Rapids, uh, DPS is a huge lab, and I mean they're just their business is growing leaps and bounds, and it has been that way for many years now. And 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 the only way that is the case is because you just don't see the emphasis on lab work that there once was. And this mm -hmm. is probably even before my time of being right in my role. So um, I would totally agree with you on that. Sure. And, and, and I don't want to sound, this is, this is going to be crazy the way I say this, but you know, we don't have a lot of regrets because you mentioned one thing, a, I'm going to steal your slit windows, by the way, I'm not, and I'm not going to copyright it no, or, or even, yeah, there's, that's just, that's a, I like that idea, but the spacing that you mentioned, right? For, for us, it's all, it's not an afterthought. It's the most important thought, but it's not something that we have to really even think about, right? The, the spacing of the office is, and, and it's not rocket science. You have three areas. You have clinical areas, which you're talking about operatories, right? You want mm -hmm. those separate from everything else for sure. So you have your clinical areas, you have your public areas, that's where, you know, obviously your, your waiting room, uh, uh, patient bathroom, that kind of stuff. And then you have your staff areas, right? When, when, if I would encourage anybody that's listening, if you sit down and talk with anybody who doesn't point that out to you, like if you're talking to an architect, if you're talking to a dental equipment distributor, really those would be the two people you're talking to, right? To help you design your space for your office. And they're not mentioning those three areas specifically to you, like highlighting the importance of them, then you should probably get up, walk away and know that you haven't found your preferred partner. Mm. Um, those are very important for one reason why you mentioned, right? Sound. You don't want the screaming kid next to the waiting room full of all other kids that could be screaming, right? You right. want them separated. And we want you separated. We want your staff separated. The last thing we want you to do is get caught up walking from a A to B where you need to be and stay on schedule, right? And have to walk by five patients or five patients, parents or whatever, right? And then all of a sudden now that efficient design of the practice just went out the window because we can't keep you on task because people see, are seeing you or they shouldn't see you. Mm -hmm. So um, if, if you get the three areas, the clinical area, the public area, and and the um, staff area, if you get those separated 
correctly and efficiently, 80% of the success of your office design is already taken care of. And we haven't even started talking about the fun stuff yet, right? Perfect. So that's something I want everybody to take away with them uh, tonight. You know, it's, 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 it's not rocket science. It's fundamental, but it's of vast importance to your success. Sure. How many square feet would you say on average you're seeing, um, if you can think of like pediatric offices specifically, uh, are you seeing like my office is, is right around 3000 square feet. I've got three quiet ops, four open bay chairs. Um, I don't have a great, I feel like I see a lot of offices that are a little bit tighter than that, especially in bigger cities where rent is a little bit higher. Um, do you know offhand, like what you're kind of seeing for trends in square footage size for maybe a single doc pediatric practice versus what some of your bigger multi-doc pedo offices, you know, standalone buildings might be, what kind of range and trends are you seeing with size with the square footage? Yeah, great. Um, so, for, so for a startup doc like you, right, 3000 square feet, that's uh, you must've really had a smart guy kind of go down there with you and help you pick out the spaces, right? I'm <laughs> right. totally kidding. Totally kidding. <laughs> Toot my own horn. Shout out, um, Dad. All right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, um, so for a startup, I'll, I'll break it up into like a startup, you know, scratch start, 1800 to 2500 square feet is what we're going to see and that's mostly determined by the amount of your startup loan right and what construction costs are and, and those different types of things um for uh for somebody well let's go to your size right so you have three private and then four um open by open bay yeah, you open know, hygiene bay, right? chairs yep so that's if we look to our general rule of thumb for a general dentist office for every chair you need about 500 square feet of of commons of, of overall space right mm -hmm. so you have seven chairs you need about 3500 but because you have a four of them are open bay you you get a discount there so mm -hmm. that that's pretty much ideal anywhere from 2800 to 3200 square feet would be optimal for you but for somebody that's building a ground up building typically we're going to be in that probably 3,500 square feet area for a pedo practice, anywhere from like 3,500 to 4,000 square feet. Um, you get some economies of scale there. You're going to be able to fit in just about anything that a single, a single doctor can handle. And then probably some room to bring an associate too, especially if you get up around that 4,000 square foot range. Um, but that, that's what I would expect to see typically for a for a solid range of where the majority of, of ground up buildings are going to fall for a single pediatric dentist is yeah. that 3500 to 4000 square feet for sure yeah i would say that's that's from my limited understanding that seems to be a trend i've seen uh you know there's a few facebook pages with some some pediatric startups and it's uh it's pretty cool to see how creative people uh, you know trying to keep cost in mind and that limited, maybe they don't have a big loan to work with and they're trying to put, you know, their first pediatric office and they're putting it in 1800 square feet. And, you know, some of these floor plans, you know, gr granted it's never going to be perfect in that small of a size, but they are able to do, I mean, you can do a lot of damage even just out of, you know, three or four good chairs. If it's laid out correctly, you can still have a pretty kick-ass office in that tight of a, a footprint. So it's cool to see how creative people can get and how they lay things out. It's kind of like, it's like a little Sudoku puzzle, you know, people post, okay, I've got 1800 square feet. I want three ops. I need this and that. And then, you know, ready, set, go. And then people just start tearing them apart. Like you don't have enough storage. You don't have enough, you know, waiting room. That's another one we could get into is, is uh, right. the waiting room. You know, that seems to be going back to what we were saying about um, and this is on my list of things I would have done different. I only had two things that I could think of, but a bigger waiting room, um, you know, I'm only working out of like four, four and a half of my seven chairs right now and seeing maybe 30, I don't know, anywhere from 25 to 35 patients a day. And my waiting room already feels cramped. You know, I kind of did the math. I, there's a rule of thumb, like, you know, for every chair you have, you're supposed to have like three waiting room chairs. And even though that seems right, it seems like in a rural peds practice, they bring grandma, they bring, you know, their cousin oh, yeah. Joe, they bring the dog. All of a sudden your waiting room's like shoulder yeah. to shoulder. And it's like, man, I've only, I mean, it's just, I, I wish I had more waiting room and I'm landlocked there. So um, I imagine that's probably something you get a fair amount is, you know, don't skimp on waiting room size in a peds practice. And the reality is though, it's like you can only prepare to, for so much, right? I mean, mm -hmm. I could tell you that, yeah, you, you 
in your area, because I know your area well, right? I drive by it all the time and I'm a Midwest guy and mm-hmm. I understand that the larger family size you're going to see there versus say St. Louis Metro or KC or Des Moines. But how do you prepare for that, right? You can't prepare for the people that have seven kids and when they come in from 45 minutes away, because that's what you, you know, those are the people that you were so excited about building your practice for is like, listen, nobody's serving these people. I want to be that guy. You can't prepare for that. Right. So, so how do you do it within reason and within reason? You're right. If you could have two to three waiting room chairs for every operatory chair that you had, that's about the best that anybody's really going to do. Right. Because it would cost too much otherwise to, lease or build out that space to be able to accommodate them all. But guess mm-hmm. what? Nobody else can accommodate them all either, right? So you could you have to you have to really say, okay, how what's the best I can do? And then when you when you get to the point where you want that bigger, better golden hammer to pound more of those nails, you can you can handle that a little bit better at that point in time that maybe you couldn't now, but really not very many startups can. Right. right? So we have to do the best that we can and we have to understand that we're going to serve the people that that do find us the best that we can. And we're going to grow out of this space and we're going to go on and we're going to do it absolutely right the next time. Right? Yeah. And, yep. and because we can afford more space. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there's a lot of truth in uh, in that right there. You know, you do the best you can with what you got. There's going to be mistakes and you, you know, um, you know, you make a call, you change and you grow. So that's. That's great. I'm going to fit. I got a few more things on my list and then okay. I want to, I, I was just thinking I might have you walk me through the steps and the timelines of a typical design process, but just so I can keep sure. on track, yeah. let me hit the last couple things on my list that worked well. Um, the two entrances thing worked well for me. I've got a, you know, a, a single entrance and then I don't have a circular checkout, like just because it chewed up, you know, the dual hallway thing chews up a lot of square footage, but I do have a separate entrance for, you know, employees for, um, uh, like the nitrous tanks, utility stuff, you know, Mm -hmm. it's kind of nice to have that employee entrance if possible. So that was kind of a good idea. Uh, bathroom wise, I never regret a single day having my own bathroom. You know, it's, uh, I've got a bathroom for the, the patients in the hallway. I've got a staff bathroom and I've got a bathroom for myself. Um, so I took that lab space and, put in more bathrooms, but haven't regretted that for a second. I really enjoy having my own bathroom. So I, uh, I think that's a great idea. And then, um, I've got large ops. I wrote, uh, these two kind of go together last two points, large ops, and then kind of a minimal amount of cabinetry and lights. I think there's a bit of a trend, like the more modern look in dental offices is, you know, more minimalistic, clean, not seeing, piles of, uh, you know, side cabinets with, you know, a million materials where it just looks overwhelming. Um, I think there's a trend in, you know, that kind of that breakaway model. That's more, uh, sorry, uh, more simplistic there with less is more kind of mentality, which I think is kind of nice. So, uh, I've never regretted having, not having side cabinets or overhead lights and keeping nice big ops. I think it's nice to be able to say, yeah, I crammed 10 ops into 2000 square feet, but, um, I don't know. Personally, I just, I don't like practicing out of a closet. So I'd rather sacrifice a chair, work out a nice, comfortable space. I've got room for my anesthesia team, room to walk around. Uh, but having nice big ops and and trying to minimize some of the cabinetry and stuff has worked out pretty well too. I don't know if, if that seems like a trend you're seeing as well as kind of a, a more sleek, minimalistic look with more space there, but it seems to have worked out, you know, it's worked out pretty well for myself at least. Yeah, I would... You know what? What they don't, what folks don't tell you about those small operatories is the wear and tear on the human body. And when I talk about that, that's yours. That's your. That's your assistance, right? Because if you don't have area to move freely, then you move with tension. And it's the same thing. Why we wanted big open ops for years for the patients, right? Because you throw somebody in an enclosed space, what happens? They become tense. Why do you want your patient to be tense? You don't. You want them to be not tense. You want them to enjoy as much coming to see you as they can, right? Mm-hmm. And we don't want you to be tense. And so nobody really ever talks about like how long a person lasts practicing when they are in this like super confined environment. Um, from a cabinet standpoint, absolutely. Um, we see 
very seldom will we see, especially in a pedo office, will we see like two side cabinets, maybe not even one, right? So we might see, say, a, a small countertop affixed to the wall with a sink in it or maybe nothing there, right? But just a countertop and you've got everything else in your walls, your towels, your gloves, those types of things. Um, where we still see, you know, an investment in, in cabinets made that, you know, obviously you'll have, there's a hundred different opinions of not a thousand different opinions. Um, but anywhere where, you know, if you, if you do use a 12 o'clock or a, a treatment style cabinet, you know, typically we'll, we'll still see those very similarly um, provided by a dental equipment distributor. And then in your sterilization center, the same thing. If it's something that you eventually want to move and have go with you, uh, you should probably source it from a dental equipment manufacturer. If you're okay with leaving it, then you're, you're probably your best bet is to go with a contractor grade. But to tr but to expect to take a contractor grade cabinet of any style with you is is probably not going to happen. But yeah, definitely more sleek, just less less cabinetry, if you will, overall. More if there's not a reason behind it, we're not going to have it type thing, right? And that really comes down to how you want to practice yourself. You know, what what does that particular dentist want? What do they need to be successful? And that's typically how it's going to look versus somebody just coming in and saying, well, we're going to have two cabinets, one on each side and two sinks, one you're never going to use and the other you're only going to use on Fridays, right? So <laughs> right. Um, definitely, definitely sleek, you know, but still operatory size is not something that I've ever uh, tried to convince or even encourage somebody to pare down too much because you, quite frankly, you can just get too small and then I just don't think it works. And I think yeah. the wear and tear ergonomically is just not, you know, I look at it this way. My clients er ergonomics and their physical selves, right? That's the biggest investment that you have as a dentist is in you, right? And, and if you're going to hire me, then my goodness, I'm going to do my best to protect you. And part of that is, is keeping the operatories of a sufficient size to make it a welcoming place, both for you, your staff and your patients. Mm, I like it. Okay. So I'm going to kind of cut you loose here. Cause I'd, I'd like you to walk me through a typical design process. So I'm a young pediatric resident listening to this. I think, man, I'm tired of this associateship. I'm tired of getting screwed. Like I want to, I want to, you know, take the plunge and be a practice owner and build something out. I, I'm thinking, you know, I know my area. I want to go back to my hometown. Um, you know, I, I know that I want to be in, you know, this kind of general area, but I, whether we have a space right. or not, but they reach out to you and say, Hey, you know, I'm, I'm interested in building out this practice. Like walk me through the design process, like kind of the general steps that your company sort of implements, and then give me a rough idea of like a timeline um, to get through that process. You know, I know you got, had showed me it's a visual we can't show, but I've seen, right. Uh, you guys have like a map that outlines all this, process. but walk me through, yeah. you know, verbally here, what that sort of process looks like. So yeah, the, the first thing that we would do uh, is we start with a vision guide, right? So you, you had, and I, I've said this about you before, and I'm not just saying it, because you invited me to be on your podcast, but um, I, I've told many people about you, uh, by the way, all all glowing reviews. But the preparation that you put in to where you wanted to be and go, and what you wanted to, to what you wanted to look like, right, wrong, or indifferent, did it end up that way? Did it end up differently? It really doesn't matter. You had a you had a roadmap, and you put a lot of thought into it. Not everybody's going to do that, Casey. I mean uh, that. It doesn't make them bad and you great or whatever. Just not everybody's going to do that. So we start with a vision guide. Anybody that they go to work with, they should start with a vision guide of some kind. If you're working with a professional group of experts like a premise dental or premise companies, we're going to have that vision guide for you. And, and it's just meant to stimulate some thought. What do I what do I want in my office? How many operatories do I want? What do I want them to look, you know, not not really what do I want them to look like, but how many operatories do I want? Do I want a lab? Um, do I need this? Do I need that? And so we would start there. And then and then obviously we met, we'd walk through our process flow chart. We split everything up into three phases. I think that's pretty common. Phase one is pre-planning or planning and design. That's really where everything's centered around creating that schematic floor plan that you can move forward with right 
well, what what things do I need to bring in from outside a premise to help me in determining that schematic floor plan? Well, I need to find a broker or a lease negotiator. Hopefully they're the same person or the same entity. And 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 I'm going to say, okay, I want to be in this geographic area. I know based upon my budget from the bank. So we're going to make sure we're dealing with a lender, right? So this is part of the team approach. Team approach is dental CPA, dental architect, dental contractor, dental lender, uh, or a highly educated local lender. Uh, broker or lease negotiator, again, hopefully the same person, attorney to review the lease agreement and to help with a professional corporation or LLC, and then a dental equipment provider. So we we need to have all those people lined up because we're going to need their expertise. For me, my role as a project advisor is I'm a wagon train leader. I'm the circus tent master. I'm just basically making sure that I'm facilitating this process and that everybody is operating within my client's best interest. And so we're going to go out, we've determined the geography, maybe we've done some demographics or what have you. We've determined the the geography and it's like, okay, Thad, where do I go? Well, we need to find a broker, somebody that's intimately familiar with that geographic area. And we need to tell them, okay, we're looking for a lease space. It's going to be between 1,800 and 2,700 square feet. We want you to do a search and give us everything you can provide. Now, before I ask my client to work on that, I'm going to come in and I'm going to look at all those things. I'm going to go, that's not going to work. That's Because I'm looking at it from how is it going to work for my client who's a pediatric dentist or a general dentist or whatever. And I'm so I'm looking at it differently from a broker. A broker's looking at it going, here's what they're charging. Here's the size of the space. Here's the address. Here's the landlord. I don't really care about much of that other than how some of those elements fit into the process as a whole. What I'm looking at is what is my client going to be responsible to pay for and what should be responsible for the landlord to provide us in an area of capital improvements. And then what's my tenant improvement allowance, right? I could spend, we could spend a whole half hour talking about how to locate property, negotiate lease, that kind of stuff. We don't have that kind of time, so I'll just leave it at that. That's a huge deal. It's also a huge part of the timeline because everything is for sale or for rent until somebody wants to uh, buy it or lease it. And then all of a sudden, none of it's available anymore. I don't know why that is. It's a really odd phenomenon, but these things take time, right? So let's assume we've picked out the space. We know the size of the space. You're going to meet with your architect, an architectural vision meeting. They're going to ask you hundreds of questions, making sure that when they create that initial floor plan, they're containing everything that you want in there, right? Boom. There's back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. The Tetrising or um, I can't remember what you called it, Jenga or Sudoku, whatever it was. There's this Tetrising back and forth. You have the space. That design should take anywhere from 30 to 60 days, depending upon how fast or how solid the, the, the dental client is in making decisions and sticking with them. Okay. Okay. So so we've got the floor plan. Now what? We're going to take that floor plan and we need to create construction documents from it, right? So construction documents right now is taking about six weeks. Um, people call them permit set, pricing set, construction set. They're all the same thing. You're going to use those documents to submit for permit. You're going to use those documents to price. You're going to use those documents to construct. So that's taking a one page, and we're just talking about you know your, your lease space now. It's taking one page schematic floor plan. You've signed off on it. You're good to go. And then we're going to create the construction documents. So for us, we have a finished elections coordinator. She's going to help with all the things we talked about earlier, light fixtures, ceiling tiles, flooring, paint, all that kind of stuff. Um, So because we want the plans to be filled, we don't want any to be determines. To be determines equal change orders. If you look them up in the Thad Harker Dictionary, TBD equals change order. You're just giving somebody an opportunity to charge you more for something that if you had selected it before the project started, would have been half the cost that it is after the project started when it's selected. Okay. Um, so we've got we've got 60 days in phase one. And th- these are just rough numbers, right? And that's exclusive to how long it takes you to l- negotiate the lease. You've got about six weeks in phase two. Once the 
documents are submitted for a permit around the sixth week, we submit them for pricing. So permit can take anywhere from four to eight weeks, depending upon what town, what municipality it's in. So there's another couple months, but we're going to be pricing it during those couple months. We'll have sat down with the client. We'll have gone over who the subcontractors are that bid on it. We'll make sure we, we go through that and we're choosing the best case scenario for our client. And then once the permit is ready, we've got it priced. We've got the construction agreements ready to go and they sign. And then typically right now it's two to three weeks to get that first contractor really on the job site and ready to go. So we look at 60 days. If we want to give us another 30, it was 60 to 90 for phase one, uh, another 60 to 90 for phase two and pricing. And then to build out an 1800 to 2,500 square foot space, we're looking at about 120 days. So another four months. Okay. So, so I'm, I'm jotting all these down as we're going. It's obviously there's, as you said, a lot of wiggle room in each of these components versus, you know, um, this got brought up in our, in our space. You know, if you're rural and you're in a town that doesn't have a lot of rules, you know, that permit process seems to be a piece of cake, but I know in some bigger cities and certain States that are much high, you know, more highly regulated, it sounds like it can be a nightmare for some people. So obviously that certainly. Yeah, let's focus on that real quick. So I'll use the city of Omaha. Um, we did a pediatric build out. It was 3,600 square feet. Their, what I call their, their market rate or their published rate. It's not a rate. It's just a measurement of time, right? It was four weeks to get a permit in the city of Omaha. What it actually took was 11. Now this was last year, uh, in the fall depths of another COVID rush. Everybody's working from home. You know, you said we can't talk about politics, so I'm going to leave the bureaucrats out of this thing. But working from home is not ideal for anybody, right? Um, and it, 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 so they're telling us four, it took 11. If you want to talk about the most stressful time of a relationship between a group like a premise or really any contractor, architect, and their client, it's when the, the client can go to the website and say, well, the city says four weeks, you must not have done ABC, right? And, and what the city tells you versus what they do are two different things. And so that's just something to keep in mind. We struggle mightily in Johnson County and Kansas city area too, because it's like they change the rules every day. Every day they change the rules. One day somebody's reviewing it. They're like, oh yeah, we'll sign this tomorrow. The next day, oh no, we don't have any of these documents. Can you resend what you've already resent us six times? So that's something to keep in mind is not how long it takes, say, us or contractor XYZ or architect ABC, right? It's understand that this is a human endeavor and those people that you chose to trust you chose to trust them for a reason. And when they come back and tell you, hey, this is what the city's telling me, it's not far-fetched. It's not an excuse. The last thing we want to do is delay anything because we're paid to design and build buildings. And delays cost us more money. We don't make any money from a delay, right? But just keep that in mind. Just make sure that when we're talking about things like permitting or lease negotiations or things that are out of your your contractor or your design partners, you know, they're not the one signing the agreement. Just keep that in mind that they're probably telling you the truth. Mm. It's just these things take forever on some occasions and there's really no explanation for it. It right. just is just so how if, it happens. If, if you, uh, if one of these young dentists comes and says, Hey, I want to be, you know, what's right now we're in July. Today is July 6th when we're recording this. Uh, let's say, Dennis says, I want to be, uh, you know, my goal is to be open by first of the year or by whatever, you know, what's a good safe rule of thumb if not, not for a ground up build. And, but if, if they know the, the area they want to be in, but if you're building out like a rental, like a lease base in an existing building, would you advise like six months, eight months? When is a good time to approach I, I, you about the process? I would say if it's a build out, I would start nine months minimum ahead of time. If it's a ground up, I would start two years. And and the reason being for that is, is, again, it's not at the pace that will move, but it's the, I've worked with a hundred and probably 50 individual clients. 
we can move faster than 99.9% of them, right? It's just you guys are making decisions that are heavier, right, than us actually just putting them on paper once they're made. So that's why I say that. It's like um, if if it's a ground-up building, start two years out. Because, again, we're talking about with a ground-up and site plan approval, it's permitting. It, there's a lot of other more time-consuming things. That There's a lot more decisions you as the client has to make, right? And so um, for a build-out, I would say nine nine months minimum. I've seen lease negotiations take nine months. And but we'll at least understand that early on in the process, because, again, it's not my first go around. And if you're working with somebody that has a similar level of experience as we have, they'll they'll be able to tell you, OK, we we're going to have to really figure some things out here to push this forward. Um, but I would say nine months minimum for a build out and two years minimum for a ground up building. OK, perfect. Perfect. So then what if. um what if somebody asks you that, what can I do to help keep my costs down? You know, I got these student loans, the bank's only given me, you know, a half million dollars. And I think it's going to take every dime of that to build out a space. I know you've said before, you know, when it comes to construction, you know, the profit margins tend to be pretty fixed because your overhead's kind of fixed, you know, the electrical yeah. takes certain amount of dollars per square foot and your plumbing is this, you know, is there any way for a dentist to potentially save a, a little bit of money, you know, as you know, what kind of things come to mind as far as fixtures, trim, building materials, anything you can do to kind of, you know, uh, keep things affordable in a build out process. Absolutely. So I call that a, a institutional value, which is the lowest that, that will go because we have a reputation to uphold. So anything lower than institutional value, I call like your Menards or your Lowe's class finish, right? You're going to go get a bunch of residential junk from a local hardware store, which Menards and Lowe's are really big hardware stores, but they are hardware stores. Um, and, and we're just not going to do that. But institutional value, what's that mean? It means when you come to do the material finish selections meeting, don't come with uh, 500 different colors of carpet on your mind. Come knowing that we're going to select the carpet that you probably will need to choose and there'll be, it'll come in five colors, right? So what we're doing is it's going to be the same quality, but it's, it's, we're talking mass produced elements of it, right? Same thing with the LVT tile. It's like same quality, but it comes in five colors. Accent paint colors. I don't know how many you have in your practice, but I, I've had anywhere from eight to 16 different paint colors. We're going to tell you, keep the paint colors to one or two, right? Because every paint color that you add adds another nonlinear exponential price for the paint. Now, these are small things, but we're talking about small spaces, right? For a 2,000 square foot space, something that costs $20,000 is 10 bucks a foot, right? It adds up very quickly. Um, we want your ceiling heights to be as low as possible, right? We don't, we're, we're not building it for uh, the, the Hobbit or anything like that, but we want them to be reasonably low. Um, we're, we're probably not going to take the drywall all the way up to the roof deck, right? We're going to take it two or, feet, two or three feet above. So is it going to be as uh, acoustically, you know, sound-wise or whatever? No, but you're going to be able to afford to do it. And guess what? You're only going to be there for five to ten years anyway, right? So yeah, there are, there are little things that you can do. The biggest thing is don't get on Pinterest, don't go to Joe Architect, and don't fill your mind full of things that you can't have because you're just going to be disappointed anyway. It's like have somebody pay somebody, if you will. You don't have to pay somebody. You just call me and I'll talk for free. As you guys can tell, I love to talk. But um, talk to somebody and just have them help you wrap your mind around the fact that again, while this is a golden hammer, this is your starting golden hammer, just like your starting house, right? The last thing you want to do is break the bank on a temporary build because you're not going to be there forever anyway. Right, right. And so let them walk you through what you need to make the space nice, make it last 10, 15 years maximum, and then know that you're going off somewhere else, bigger, better, or whatever. And that really comes down to finishes. You know, you mentioned like curves, no curves in the wood. We want straight corners, right? None of that extra stuff. Just 
put a nice paint job on it. Give yourself some 15 to 20 year carpets and tiles. Um, make the make make the design come alive with artwork that you can add as you make more money versus trying to carve out a bunch of soffit and fascia and intricate wood detailing. Does that make sense? Sure. No, like, it, it absolutely does. And I think like uh, as an example of that, I got real caught up in that too, where I had this vision of wanting it, my office really, really look like a barn and put all this time into it. But I've learned that kids are so destructive. Parents are half the time overwhelmed. Like you're better off making your office very functional, make it bulletproof, very rugged because kids are going to find ways to bang things up, oh my dead things, scratch <laughs> things. So like build it up there and I get more compliments on the big farm animal prints that I put up, which I paid a hundred bucks a piece for, you know, a couple yep. of canvases of some cows. And then, uh, I made a little barn wood wall with a little logo barn thing. Um, you know, I get, I get more compliments on those things than I ever would a curvy floating, you know, spheres in the ceiling or, you know, that real oh, fancy yeah. finish work. Yeah. Or a fake, uh, spatial head in the corner or whatever. I mean, yes, I, there, there's an office that we did in Kansas city, uh, uh I, I can use names, right? Office yeah, names? drop it. Uh, yeah, um, Touchstone Endodonic. So it's not a pedo, but um, in, in he, we were blessed. Just a, one of our clients met. Uh, 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 oh gosh, what do you call it? Interior designer, right? So our finish selections co coordinator is coordinating finishes, not necessarily things that aren't attached to the building, like artwork or furniture or whatever. And so we, we were blessed to meet this gal. She worked with another one of our clients. And when you walk into his office and you look through his door, now we gave him the glass door, right? And you look through and you see these pictures of like um, Yellowstone or Yosemite and, and the coloration of how they fit into what we gave him, right? And you sit there and you go, I don't know why everybody doesn't do that. Because you can take those with you, right? And, and for you especially, like you – and I think we talked about this. It's like, it's like, you don't have to give up on the barn idea. You might just not be able to have it today. Right. Right. And, and, and guess what? You might change over now that you know how destructive kids are. You might just go to like a penal institution, like put a penitentiary themed <laughs> office up because that's what right, you need. Right. I know this because I, I have a 17, yeah, I have a 17 year old boy. And I'd like to tell you that when they get older and closer to manhood, they become less destructive. No, they just become bigger and things break more quickly and easier. But um, <laughs> no, he's a good kid. But uh, my point is, it's like you can telegraph what your personality through that artwork. And then when you get to the point and you say, Hey, maybe I want something similar to what I initially wanted, but I'm going to make some changes because I'm older, I'm wiser, blah, blah, blah. And, and it, it, your personality is still shining through. Right. And that's what you did. And people are, they want to see who you are. And you showed that to them more so than any, any global light fixtures, or, you know what I'm saying? It's like, and that's what I want for my clients. And I'm so happy to hear that, that you did that because you're showing them who you are, right? Yeah. And, and versus just what some catalog, you know, fixture creator shows them. And, and I applaud that. And I wish everybody would, would look at it that way because it makes for a better experience for everybody. Yeah, absolutely. I, and I appreciate that too. But, uh, I tell you what, Thad, we could, uh, I tried to keep these to about an hour and I, I know you and I both nerd out about this stuff and could talk about it all day here. So, um, you know, I guess in summary, we got a lot of really good topics we hit on and we'll have to do this round two. Cause I know there's more stuff we didn't get to that we could, um, you yeah, know, kind of dive questions into. come through or whatever. I mean, I think it'd be great to round two it up and we could, we could talk about those. We could, really anything i mean sure. I, i'm i'm always available i don't want to captivate your time you know but i, I this has a, been a privilege for me and I, I i was worried about like how do i talk to an invisible screen it's i think hard. i'd be okay on the radio though i think i'd be okay on the radio <laughs> now it's like my first time yeah this is my yeah. first time so uh but no i really any any way i can help if, if people I, I do this at the university of iowa every time i speak to the fourth years in the fall and I, I tell them all, it's like, take out a piece of paper, write down my name, write down my email address, my phone number. Even if you're not going to be in Iowa or the Midwest, even if you're not one of those 16 states that premises, say you want to go to Washington or Arizona or whatever, I tell people, and, and if anybody reaches out to you, just give them my phone number, give them my email address. 
I'll try to hook them up with people that can help them or at least give them a starting point. Um, Cause really it's like, I kind of went over that team thing, but the team is so important, Casey. And you, you saw that. You ended up going with somebody different than us. They're outstanding in what they did. I'm sure they took care of you. But you understand the importance of teams, man. And, and, Absolutely. And everybody everybody needs to. We're we, we so much cost-driven. I want the cheapest. I want this. If you get something that's cheap, guess what? It means you're forgoing something else that you probably really need. So the mm-hmm. biggest thing is to find a team that people trust. Let them walk through, walk you through it, and then reach out to folks like me or you or whatever and just say, hey, somebody's telling me this. What do you think? I've got all the time in the world to respond to email or text or phone call to help people out because I'm a huge believer in what I do and what my company does and what I've been given the opportunity to do by those people who have gone there and done it before me. Yeah, absolutely. And you guys build, I mean... Anybody can get on and check your, uh, check your website out. I'll give you a shout out here on that too, but you know, you guys yeah. build the Cadillac and dental offices and I think your, you know, your reputation speaks for itself. So if somebody wants to get a hold of you, Thad, what's some good contact info? If they get a hold of you, check out some of the work you guys have done. What, yeah, where can so they get our, it? Our, our webpage, which thank God we're updating. Um, but it, it's good to go to still it's, it's dentalbuilders.com, all one word, www.dentalbuilders. Dot com. If you go to our works page, you're going to see a lot of pedo dental offices there. We've done a ton of those, but you'll see all kinds, right? We've done, there's not a, there's not a discipline that we haven't done. Um, but go to our works page at www.dentalbuilders.com. Um, we have a book, uh, that the owner of premise published back in 2016. Uh, I believe it's called, he killed me if he hears me struggle with it. Um, how to make the right impression. Uh, I can get you a free copy of that book. Uh, it's worth reading. Like I said, it's not rocket science, but it's there's case studies in there. It's a, it's a good information piece just to kind of introduce yourself to the things that go in and the decisions that are involved in making a practice. So if you want to shoot me an email, I'm at thad at dentalbuilders.com, T-H-A-D at dentalbuilders.com. And if you want to text or whatever, 319 361 five, four, two, four is a good number to get, to reach out to me at. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah. Hey, that sounds good. I, uh, we're going to end it. You know, we're going to try to encourage people to build that golden hammer because, uh, there's not a day that goes by. I don't regret building out an office and being, being an owner. It's the best decision I've ever made. So I think if if more people can, can go that route, I think we'd have a lot of of happy pediatric dentists out there for sure. We'd have a lot better patient care as well. A hundred percent. Yeah. Keep doing what you're doing. I appreciate it. For sure. Hey, have a good night and uh, stay in touch. We'll talk soon. Okay. All right. You too. All right. See you. Thanks. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Bruise and Tiny Teeth podcast. Don't forget to submit any questions, comments, or tough clinical situations to cgets at troypediatricdentist.com for our next Pedo Pearls Power Hour. Also, be sure to share our podcast and leave a review. Thanks, and we'll see you again next week for another episode.